Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where every week we try and provide a fresh perspective on the events of the week and the technology driving the energy transition. You're here with me, Peter White. As usual, I'm joined by our analyst, Harry Morgan. Hello. Who covers wind and hydrogen. Solar specialist, Andres Wontenar. Hello. And our publisher, Simon Thompson, who's going to pick out what caught his eye this week. Hello. Yes. On the show today, we'll be discussing how solar has grown by 12% last year to reach 164.3 gigawatts of installed uh, in 2021, despite the headwinds of the pandemic, despite trade wars, despite polysilicon shortages, and not to mention an actual real war. We'll also talk about one of the largest energy storage deals in the world, in all places, Ghana. Perhaps Africa is getting off the Belt and Road fossil fuel trail and uh, is seeing the benefits of renewables finally and we'll be hearing about a 12-year battle to replace polysilicon by growing silicon crystals for wafers instead of cutting them so andres if we can start with you if you can get, talk us through the quarterly additions to S- global solar uh, yes so uh, q4 the world installed 61 gigawatts of solar and that brought the annual total to 164.3 by by my calculations over 146.5 gigawatts in the year before so it's a it's a 12 percent growth which objectively speaking is is fast for for any industry Uh, but for solar it could have been it could have actually been better i mean 2020 jumped a lot 2021 remarked in in many articles uh had, had a far higher demand, and, and the question was always how much was that demand going to be uh, prevented from being realised by the supply chain issues? And the answer is quite a lot, and in fact, even more than I'd expected. I mean, I forecast earlier that it would be 169 gigawatts supplied, instead of, uh, and then we get 164. And in fact, after forecasting that, I ended up thinking, oh, maybe it'll be higher than my forecast, but no, it was, it was a bit lower. I've got to heap a little bit of praise on you here, Andres, because at the beginning of the year, you were reading all these other forecasts of 203, 210, and, and you were saying, but they can't because there won't be enough polysilicon. And you were coming up with 169. And as you say, as you rightly say, it wasn't even that much. So you, I think you were the first voice um, that we came across that was saying these numbers would not materialise that all the other analysts were saying. Uh, so I've, that, that's some praise there. It's funny now, everyone's saying the opposite. They're saying, oh, well, with the polysilicon shortage, it's going to go on for years. And, and you're saying it's going to recover more quickly. To be honest, I have been surprised a couple of times at how long this polysilicon shortage has gone on, but uh, at the high prices, certainly. But at the end of the day, uh, they're, they're building a lot of factories. so they that, And the price started rising and early 2021 so that does mean the factories will be some of them the first will come online in 20 really late 2022 actually but mostly in the first half of 2023 is when you'll get some big new capacity coming online for real but um yeah i think some people are still saying like 175 183 Uh, we'll see what what they have to say about what's going to happen next year then what what do we think is going to install next year and and then walk us through where the installations were this year well next year it's it should be where the demand was last year i I think it will be much larger next well this year actually of course which is now next year um i think it will come to 204 gigawatts i mean you would have to have 600,000 tons supplied for that and that would mean a production capacity of maybe 700,000 tons i think it i think that is reasonable but as for where the growth was this year 
So there's quite a big contrast regionally. China grew 13.9%, which is um, actually one of the lower regionals compared to 20% in Europe. Like I say, there's several markets coming back alive there, and the new one in Poland is, is growing very swiftly. The USA, 24%. Uh, that's pretty fast. India, 18.1%, if you compare it to what 2020 would have been, instead of the, I mean, they actually installed almost nothing, but I'm not going to say India grew 318%, because that's just misleading. The most remarkable changes were, there was actually a fall of 10% in Japan and South Korea and Taiwan, uh, all quite similar declines. And there was a rise of almost 40% in Latin America, where Brazil, Mexico, and Chile all grew quite significantly. And it's interesting, actually, Mexico, the solar market actually hasn't died uh, quite yet in terms of installations. I'm sure the investment has dried up, especially for utility scale projects, but the, the pipeline is still actually being completed. I thought that the Mexican government's reforms would have already killed it off, but it's still limping along for now. Why were the figures for Germany so high for that quarter? Um, Germany's always been that high. To, well, not, not quite that high. But it's, it's been very consistently growing by I don't know, a couple of, maybe 5% or something per quarter. Or Germany never really went completely moribund. In, in 2011, or after the 2008 recession, a lot of the European states uh, cut their funding and the solar installations kind of collapsed. In Germany, they kept some subsidy, and it, I think it collapsed to 2 gigawatts, and then it just kept on consistently growing. So G- Germany's actually always like that. This is a very typical... Um, performance for Germany and in fact it barely grew year on year Aren't there quite a few dynamics at play really in Germany I've, I, I think surely with the, the high gas prices there there's been some shift towards more rooftop solar um, and I think I was, I was reading a, th- a couple of weeks ago that they've there are some quite sort of niche le- bits of legislation coming on board uh, I think around things like commercial car parks and and other certain projects like that where you where it's now becoming mandatory to have solar panels actually covering things and do you think that's really driving uh, much of the new much of sort of the increase in solar in Germany? Well, it's, it's certainly contributing something. They also are shifting towards having some utility-scale projects, which they haven't before. They are, they're loosening planning permissions. I mean, certainly uh, now, after the desire to totally uh, uh, reject Russian gas imports, they're going to have to do that sort of thing, and we're going to see major reforms from there. I, I don't think there's been a, a great, a huge change in the German solar market like in the past year. Uh, I think when we see that change, it's going to be a lot higher than five gigawatts. Yeah, I just uh, point out that um, all these quarterly numbers are um, the subject of a research paper that we've published. We're publishing today on on the research site, which means you have to be a customer, fortunately for that. So this is just a flavour of what's in that report. That will be at the... um, you, know, cl- you click on, uh, you go to rethinkresearch.biz, you click on energy and you click on forecasts and data and, th- and it should be there. That will be published um, uh, and it's a much more detailed account with um, 10 or 12 graphs showing um, what the numbers. And within the next couple of weeks, we'll be publishing our forecast, annual forecast for solar in the same place. Perhaps we can, can move on. I was absolutely, uh, I was quite surprised to see one of the largest energy storage deals in the world appear in Ghana. Uh, I had to remind myself of, of um, where Ghana is on the energy equation, and it's it's fundamentally 50-50 ga- gas and hydro with nothing more than a few hundred megawatts of solar. And here they are, and, and of all people, it's Huawei, Huawei Digital Power Technologies, who are going to build 
uh, a one gigawatt solar plant and add 500 megawatt hours of energy storage using uh, lithium iron. And uh, with a local company, Minergy, which I've not come across before, but um, which is obviously has done several deals there. And in fact, the the last few solar deals that were done there were done were built by Minergy. So that's the developer. I mean, this is a country of 31 million people who've got very little. Um, they've got about 12 um, terawatt hours of uh, of um, annual generation. Um, it, it's quite a small market. Uh, and their their promise on their nationally determined contribution was that to get 10% of power from renewables by 2030. Well, if I'm doing my sums right, I think just installing this um, will get them to 10% of power coming from renewables almost overnight. Interestingly, this is a country that would be normally subject to kind of China's Belt and Road initiatives, and they would be trying to build them coal plants and gas plants. But this, we were told by, that China would turn that around and start funding, if indeed this is funded by China. It wasn't clear, um, but I think it will be, uh, renewable projects. And it, this looks like they're true to their word. They've already started not suggesting fossil fuels uh, in, in Belt and Road. And, and actually, uh, although this doesn't say it's a Belt and Road project, um, it, this is China trying to uh, control infrastructure in in African countries, so um, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know, if, especially if they're going to pay pay for them and, and and build them. The issue I found there was that Ghana actually has a surplus of electricity, even though uh, there's you know, only twenty, uh, nearly twenty percent of of its population don't have electricity, and even if they have electricity, only twenty percent of the population use clean cooking fuels. So most of them still cook on fires so they could probably do with a lot more electricity it's just that they don't have the grid to kind of get up to the uh, more rural north and, and most of the population centers are in the south uh, and near the big lake there whose name i've just forgotten <laughs> and so they export to togo to benin to burkina faso um, and to the ivory coast they support that they they export energy already it's it's one of their main exports i was going to say about the the um it, it's it's quite near the equator i noticed so do, is there any um significance about that well yeah only that the uh, irradiation in the northern half of the country is um uh, probably just about perfect for solar um you know it, it, we, we always talk about um different parts of china um, parts of chile uh, that all have perfect irradiation and australia this is this is the same color on on the graph you know as uh, as those it's um it, it's significant amount of uh, irradiation I mean, uh, as i say it's only the fact that the north is so far away from the south i mean it's not a big country but that you'd need transmission to to take it from the north all the way down to the south. So I think most solar has been built in the south, even though it's not as good uh, there for um, for solar. But um, and this one's being built um, not too far inland. So so what's this actually serving exactly? It's it's a deal with Huawei, is it? Well, I'm assuming that Huawei is you know puts the money in and uh, and builds it. it. The development has been done by Minergy, a local mm. company, and uh, and the uh, purchaser 
um, is going to be um, the the local um, um, the local energy company. So it's actually to to, to, to serve the Ghanaian uh, society as a whole. It's and supposed that, to. Yeah, that kind of makes me curious because I've always thought of batteries as kind of expensive and something you build when you have a, a huge amount of variable renewables on the grid. Well, here you have it built in a poor country that doesn't have... I guess maybe it doesn't have that much for renewables. What, uh, what happened to gas peakers? It has, <laughs> has almost likely. nothing. It yeah. has almost nothing. It, yeah. yeah, they will have gas peakers, I'm sure. So so why why, why batteries now already in, in um, Africa? Uh, my only answer to that is, is going to be a bit of guesswork. Um, they do have a, a prolonged rainy season, monsoon. Again, primarily in the south, when the output from solar would become um, even more intermittent. So I, w- I would suspect that it's it might have something to do with that. It just smooth it, just needs it to smooth the delivery of solar, and also into the evening. I mean, if you actually go and look on the graph on there, there is a there is a kind of power system master plan. They they draw that uh, uh, you know the old classic solar graph peaking in the middle of the day and then disappearing at five in the afternoon with with the battery plus battery graph which peaks a second time into the early evening and I think that's probably um, I think that's all it is it's it's just moving it the electricity into the early evening so that people can read watch television listen to the radio possibly for the first time I mean the average amount of electricity per capita is tiny. It's 400 kilowatts, kilowatt hours a year. So, I mean, it's it's something like a tenth of, of, of most civilised countries. You know, you're not thinking a big house with a ring main with uh, 27 plugs in it. You're, you're thinking of, of two or three usage, mostly lighting. Does this show that solar and, and storage is actually fully competitive with gas? Because we've been saying for a long time, that gas is no longer cost competitive with solar. I won't want to answer that from this this installation because there's not enough data on it. We don't know the pricing. But, I mean, it's just just the speed at which um, we talk about gigafactories and and we talk about that because of the number of gigawatts of battery that's being produced. Uh, As we try and track that, the price on battery manufacture partly on the learning curve partly from competitive pricing is just going down 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 all the time i mean it, it it's uh, i think we were looking at american pricing sort of being 240 dollars uh, per megawatt hour 2 years ago dropping to about 140 last year and then you know, and sliding under a hundred probably now. Now, perhaps that's not quite happened because uh, a lot of the rare earth metals uh, have been um, have been in short supply. But uh, if if the, these had been normal the last two years, uh, that certainly would have happened. And you know, you start off with the idea, oh, batteries, you know, way too expensive. Well, when you do an installation with solar, you only need half the um, uh, capacity of the solar. So first, you're only buying half as much because you, you know, you're using the solar energy during the day, and then, but keeping half of it back for the evening. So you only need to store half of it, the, the, and the half of it brings the price down, 
um, dramatically. And then if, if you go two years since you last thought about pricing, you suddenly go, oh, look, is that really the pricing? And, and given that this is uh, Huawei, who probably can get best pricing out of China for, for battery, it probably is exceptionally low pricing. And, you know, you only need two or three years of progress like that in uh, LCOS falling, and it, it stops being a problem. And I think we're getting close to that. Anyway, it was just a, you know, there, there, there are other announcements this week that are much bigger, you know, and I always look at, um, at Saudi, um, there's a, there's a, you know, aqua power and Jinko power of, in Saudi Arabia of, of, uh, uh, agreed to build 15 gigawatts of solar. I never believe those because I, it always turns out that only half of them gets built or less than that. I think I think perhaps Saudi is starting to build solar. That's to be expected. It's you know it is mostly a desert and the conditions are perfect. Um, but of course it's always undermined by its fossil fuel interests. But but to see another part of of that the world you know, Africa to start it that really hasn't been making statements about solar. So that's why I picked picked that out as something of interest. Uh, and as you say, especially for the storage aspect. Um, so. I think we can move on to, um, yeah, so we did an interview. Again, I did an interview with a company called Leading Edge. And it's been around, you know, it's, it's, I'm trying to interview lots of startups. I had trouble saying um, Rick's name, the CEO, Schwerd, Schwerdfeger. <laughs> Schwerdfeger, I think, yes. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, he, he was a, a lively character. And we've got a video, again, in the forecast and data section. But I thought it was worth putting a, a news item in for the people who get the newsletter. That it's, it's all about um, heating up, um, make, making silicon molten at 1,420 degrees and blowing gas over it. So it forms a seed and then pulling, pulling a kind of string from the seed and then using that to solidify into silicon wafers, um, taking three or four steps out of uh, the polysilicon manufacturing process. And this has been going on for 12 years. But initially, funding was very low, came out of a university, a bit more funding. And, and he's he's on the rounds now looking at uh, $30 million for a Series B funding this summer because they're going to start, they're going to build a pilot. They've, they've cracked the technology, which they call floating silicon method. There are, they've just got 19 employees. If, if this pro, the interesting thing is that by depriving it of oxygen, there's less contamination of the, of the silicon and you get a higher, greater efficiency in the finished product. So you might only, so we get, we get announcements all the time of uh, people breaking world records at 25% of uh, total energy conversion. And you might only get half a percent more making silicon this way. You make it cheaper and you make it with less energy. And so you end up, it could easily, once this process is cracked properly, um, come to contribute a large chunk of global wafer capacity and he dreams of being up at the 32 gigawatt level per annum by 2030 and he says he's on track it's a small business it's way still way off in the future it's still t 10 years to, uh, until he can get to those types of numbers but it is somebody trying to change the process by which we um, we make solar do you think prospective buyers w would be hard to come by 
I think it's it's like every market. If you're selling wafers, you're selling wafers. If the wafer works, if it creates slightly more efficient circuits, you can charge slightly more for them. You know, it's all dollars per gigawatt hours produced. It, it, it's 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 all you know. You, you you price according to the the market, and I don't think anyone's going to have a problem once it's been through a pilot and it's shown its stability. And uh, I think it'll just go from strength to strength i don't think i mean he's talking about it costing 300 to 350 million to build the factory eventually what the the whole 32 gigawatt factory? yes yeah that's yeah. yes that's far lower than um the investment cost of current factories just to just to give a bit of context i mean i mean you probably covered that already but like silicon is is the main raw material cost for for photovoltaics and its production involves these very high temperatures to painstakingly purify it because if it's impure it's the product is less efficient in the in the um, semiconductor and uh, they've already there is already a move to granular fbr silicon i wonder if this is at all similar to that which would be a lot cheaper you know but it just consumes so much electricity that the whole global industry is, has moved to bloody rural china for cheap prices um that's how that's how extreme the issue is of, of the power consumption and the cost of doing it so so really attacking that would be very significant and it would actually allow America to really have its own uh, vertically integrated solar supply chain. Um, well, he, he genuinely thinks he can supply maybe um, 60% of the American wafers w- once. And the rest would come from first solar. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> uh, yeah, which, which of course are not silicon. Yeah. Uh, okay, so, so and Simon, so um, it's, uh, um, it's your turn. Um, have you yes. seen anything in the issue? I mean, with the, the issue, as usual, has plenty in it. It's it's not worth just listening to the um, podcast and thinking you've heard it all. There's plenty of other stories, and and there's some shorts at the end. And Simon like, usually likes to pull one out. Well, there was something worth noting this week, and it was uh, uh, it's about the the supply chain again, and uh, and also the the current Ukrainian crisis, and it was about the price of nickel. And that had shot up four times since the, the, the war started. And it just got me thinking about other raw materials in renewables. So why did it shoot up four times? I think that's really important. And I'd actually like to bring uh, Harry into this question because I, I, I'm finding this idea of I have not got an economics degree. I have not been taught about supply and demand. But I have seen what happens when there is shortage of supply and how and demand if demand goes up how prices just get completely out of whack with anything that's that you know that was um that stable pricing uh, would allow this is 11% of the world's uh, nickel supply coming out of the russia russia supplies right yeah and so all you're talking about is less than is, is 11% being removed you would think that this would be a simple matter of a few miners accelerating their production taking up the slack of that 11 percent and that the marketplace would be relatively stable instead it it went 400 percent in a few days with the announcement of the war now nickel is used in um, electrodes or cathodes for um for lithium-ion batteries and many other batteries basically the battle the, the the battery market could have suddenly had its this could be its polysilicon moment when suddenly its na- its natural resources go up but nickel is the most plentiful metal on the planet 
at a bar, perhaps iron. So I don't really see why it should be going up to... Uh, it's just a form of panic and, and I think perhaps profiteering going on in the market. I mean, most people will have long-term contracts out on their nickel supply. They'll have agreed pricing. They, this is the, the London Metal Exchange. This is where people gamble with what's left over. Yes, okay, it's like a spot market. But essentially, no one's going to buy a battery at those prices. They're going to wait. Yeah, I think you're right, Peter. I think the, the thing at the moment is obviously... Europe isn't going to be buying any nickel from uh, from Russia, neither is the US, probably maybe neither Japan. But when you look at other countries that are trying to develop their own electric vehicle industries um, or even just their, their own automotive industries, uh, like especially India and China or Pakistan, countries that um, will still buy from Russia, if Russia start offering this at a discounted price, um, then it, it will just it will completely resettle the market. The rest of the market will adjust to those prices because the, um, those that are refining nickel in in the US, those that are refining nickel in Canada, they're going to want to be selling to those markets as well. So I think it's just, it is, as you said, just a short term panic. Um, it's not necessarily um, supply disruption. It's just the market having to adjust, and there will be obviously things that need to come into place there. There will need to be financial instruments that are created to allow that trade um, and allow that trade without using uh, dollars from Russia um, but there uh, there will be in the next 6 to 12 months regardless of what happens in the U- <coughs> in the Ukraine there will be um, the market will settle down I think well it was it was settling down um, so so the London Metal Exchange pulled nickel trading and uh, gave it a week-long suspension got everybody to settle down and then put it back on the market with a a special reserve meaning you can't move more than x percent and it moved downwards more than x percent and they had to withdraw it from the market again so so a week was a long time in nickel uh, quite clearly and um and and the the price was was crashing again too fast so they've withdrawn it again I, i imagine it'll be slowly brought back online uh, and able to trade small amounts over the next few weeks. And I imagine it's going to be somewhere close to normality by that time. Yeah, I mean, when you've got financial instruments that can be sort of withdrawn from the markets like that, then you're bound to get people panicking on the day a suddenly trade. And we saw it with wheat at the start of the um, start of the conflict. I think uh, on certain markets, wheat can only go up to 12% a day. Um, for for obvious reasons in terms of securing global uh, food supplies but because there's that limit on it going up 12% a day if it goes up 12% one day um, then you're going to want to invest because you're going to assume it's going to go up the next day so I I think that's what happens it's just sort of a spiral in investor attitude thinking that um, because because there's this inflationary pressure that is going to be ongoing um, because you're just seeing this maximum figure and you think oh well it must be far beyond that yeah yeah, no, and I and I just the, the idea that natural markets are the best arbiters of how much the man in the street pays for energy is not a good one. <laughs> I think uh, you know, and I, and I I think natural markets have these spikes in them on supply and demand and on investor panic. And I don't think investor panic should be the basis upon which you buy your energy. So I kind of got a bit disillusioned looking at supply and demand over the this Ukraine crisis. The price of gas is ludicrously high. It doesn't warrant that. Um, the price of nickel here is ludicrously high. It doesn't warrant that. And um, 
and it's it, the sooner we get away from um, global globalized supply and demand with the ensuing panic, the better. Anyway, um, there's um, another ten or fifteen items in uh, short items. There's uh, the normal thirty-page issue, um, and it's all available. Um, on rethinkresearch.biz click on energy in the weekly analysis and uh, we encourage people to go and read the whole issue which can be downloaded as a pdf there